Hey, this is Julia Stern, and you're listening to Not My Best. It's the podcast that reminds you to stop trying to live your best life and to start actually living a better one. The key word there is better. Just a little bit better every single time you do something, and you'll wind up doing much more than trying to perform at 100% all of the time every single day because you're not a robot and it's impossible. So much is going on. I am so happy to be here with you today. It's a Thursday and it's in the middle of the day when usually this podcast goes live on Tuesday morning. So clearly I have faced multiple challenges with trying to get this episode up. However, I know that it's true to what I preach on this podcast that just trying to do better is better than doing nothing at all. And so you're getting an episode on Thursday and it's a nice end of week surprise. I am really looking forward to today's guest. She is my friend. I know her from Rumble. Her name is Taylor Ray Almonte and she is not only an actor, she's not only an athlete, she's also an activist and she goes above and beyond to help spread information and knowledge about the Black Lives Matter movement and everything that is going on in our current society. So I knew when I started this second uh, season of Not My Best that I wanted to have a conversation about race. Um, It makes me wildly uncomfortable because I am afraid of saying something wrong. Um, But I think it's important to have the conversation because it's the only way that we progress and move forward. So this conversation is a good listen if you want to further your knowledge about different terms and things that are affecting what's going on. And it's also great if you want to get inspired to have these types of conversations yourself and you're worried about misstepping. At the end of the day, I know that it is my privilege to be able to learn about racism instead of experiencing it. And the biggest takeaway that I have right now is that it's very, very messy Um, to fight racism. There is no way that it's done gracefully. There's no way that it's done perfectly, just like the theme of this podcast. Um, You have to put yourself out there. You have to be able to admit when you are wrong and you have to listen empathetically to people who have very different experiences from you. And you have to understand that whatever their experiences were, that they are valid, even if it makes you uncomfortable. So I really want to thank Taylor for coming today. I will thank her a million times before the episode is over, and I want to get right into it. But before I do, a quick word from my favorite company, Holistic Wellness, all natural, locally grown CBD sticks that can either be poured or stirred into your drink. Lately, I'm stirring it into my smoothies, whereas when the weather was a little bit colder, I was stirring it into my tea. They have all natural ingredients with additives like turmeric and ginger to meet different needs. There is one for digestion, there's one for sleep, there's one for post-workout recovery. Check out their site and read more about them at holisticwellness.com and you can use the code NOTMYBEST for 25% off your order. Send me a message, let me know what you think once you've tried them. And now here is a conversation with Taylor Ray Almonte. I'm really excited for today's episode because it is a re-record with my friend Taylor. We had a great conversation, which I'm actually very thankful that we had on Monday, um, of an open and honest conversation about race. And we're going to get into something that um, Taylor does. She's like very big in activism and really spreading information and positive messages. But I'm so grateful that she is here today to have this conversation with me, not once, but twice, <laughs> so that you can all enjoy it and hopefully walk away from this, learning at least one thing or being in 
inspired to go out there and do something about everything that is going on in our current world. So just a little bit about Taylor. If you don't know her, she is a Brooklyn-based actor, athlete, and activist. She graduated from NYU with a double major in drama and English and American literature. She is a rumble boxing trainer, which is how I know her. But most recently, what she is doing, which I think is absolutely amazing, she's on that founding board of Claim Our Space Now as the social media strategist. And Claim Our Space Now is a new organization whose mission is to embolden urgent action to dismantle white supremacy and save Black lives. So she's really, and we're going to get into this in the conversation, but she is really going above and beyond um, to do her part to not only spread information, but also to spread, um, you know, positivity and attention to all of the issues that are going on in our country and our world over the last couple of months um, as we kind of face this new normal. So anyway, Taylor Realmonte, thank you so much for coming on to my podcast. Yay, I'm so happy to be here. I just again. touched, I know, again, <laughs> we are very, very lucky to have Taylor not once but twice because you will so appreciate this episode. I got a little preview of what it was on Monday when we had this conversation and she just has so much to share. So one of the reasons that Taylor and I are friends and have known each other for almost a year now that she's been with Rumble um, is because we both kind of take on a lot and we both are open to new opportunities and exploring things that we are passionate about, even if it doesn't fit like a cookie cutter mold. So I just said that you are an athlete, you're a boxer, you're an activist, and you also studied American and English literature, and you also are now using your talents to become an activist. So for those who don't know you, just tell me a little bit about yourself um, and how you got to where you are right now. Yes, so um, I always, Growing up, I always loved acting. It was like my main outlet and source of confidence and where I felt that I could be the most myself and um, always just was on that path. NYU was the only school that I applied to initially just for drama. And um, my entire idea was if I don't get into the school, then like I shouldn't be an actor, like the most dramatic person alive. So um, went to NYU and I, feel like you said you feel the same that like I absolutely love school love college like love education and honestly was like one of the best experiences of my life and love learning so I figured while I was there might as well double major so I double majored in English and American literature and um, I guess once I graduated I was really focused on acting and I'm so happy that I was and that I have always made that a huge part of my life but I think as I started I was going on tour a lot tours are super common and I didn't so much want to go on tour anymore the last project I did was the Broadway national tour of Motown the musical which was amazing and when I was traveling so much one of the only consistent things that I felt that I had was working out and like trying different studios like around the US and Canada and everywhere that we were visiting and and performing and so when I came back I just started doing the front desk at a bar studio and never, ever, 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 ever saw myself as being an athlete whatsoever. Um, like I, like a fun fact, not really that fun, but a fun fact about me is that I like don't drink water. Like I just don't think I need really? it. Like I don't, I don't think to drink it. Like, it but just, like you are aware that you do need it, right? Yes. But okay, unless I'm cool. like purposefully <laughs> like making an effort to drink water, I like won't. And so I used to faint 
I fainted like four times during my childhood from dehydration because I just Do you was get like, thirsty? No. Like, <laughs> I don't know what's wrong with me. I honestly think that I'm just like, I remember being a kid and my mom going to my pediatrician and being like, tell her she needs to drink water. My pediatrician was like, she's really healthy. Like, she's good. And I think I was just like, oh yeah, the doctor said I don't need water. So like, I'm fine. Oh my God. So, I just like never played sports because I always thought I was going to pass out, but it was just because I like didn't drink water. And so fast forward to me being an adult, I um, basically become so in love with group fitness and the messaging behind it and like the community and just like all the awesome things became a spin instructor and then a rumble boxing trainer. And now I think, I mean, especially in this moment where we're like in a pandemic and also having this massive reckoning about race in our country. And also people have the opportunity to discuss it and talk about it and learn about it and protest about it because they're not working these 40 hour work weeks and they have access to time, which seems crazy, but like we don't have time to deal with these things a lot of times. So I think that's why it's kind of like this moment where all these, you know, things are coming to light. And for me, like I, I remember just like so many things about my childhood moments that I always had this like little tiny activist inside of me. Like I was telling um, my fiance, my now fiance, that I remember being in second grade and going to school and being like, I refuse to celebrate um, Columbus Day because he killed all of the people in Puerto Rico, like all the Tainos, because I like just learned about that from my, my family. And I was like in second grade. And I just remember being like, always super vocal about how I feel and my thoughts and my beliefs. So in this moment, it just seemed kind of super natural for me to transition. I was already teaching classes to tons of people every week on social media. And so basically added um, an activism element and decided to start discussing different facets of racism in my classes, making them all donation-based to different organizations and just kind of incorporating like everything that I love, like education and speaking and learning and activism and fitness and using my personality into this kind of new thing. Yeah, we were talking and I know I said I wasn't going to mention the last recording, but here I am the first time I open our mouth. Um, The last recording, we were talking about how like you are able to use so many facets of your personality that really work for many different I don't know, careers or roles, if you want to call them that. So um, you have to be somewhat of an outgoing person to be an actor. You have to have a personality to be a fitness instructor, and you have to have a platform um, where people will really listen to you to be a successful activist. And so you're able to use all of those things toward what you're passionate about. So even though the many hats that you wear look very different, all in all, you're using the same qualities about yourself to achieve them because you're allowed to have different passions. For sure. For sure. So, and I want to get into a conversation, which is really why I wanted to have you here about race and about what is going on right now. Um, And I had mentioned this again, the last time we recorded, I just don't want to forget to say it again, that I really don't know everything and I'm not afraid to admit that. And a lot of what we talked about is like that I very, very well could misstep and say something. I'm not going to edit out any of the conversation pieces from today just because I think that is part of making any type of progress is owning your mistakes and 
owning the fact that you don't know everything um, and taking steps to learn. So again, thank you for coming on here. And I hope that we can get like a lot of good content out of this podcast. So I just want to, I want to speak to your experience as a, as a black woman and in a community where you are doing so much work to share, to share information. A lot of people in that community really feel that it is fatiguing. It's exhausting to share information. Um, And you've taken a point to put in a ton of work and a ton of time to share resources. So how did you come to that decision and why? Um, So I think the first thing that's super important to think about is like this term emotional labor that I feel like a lot of people throw around. And I have my weekly newsletter that I send out that's on different topics and different facets of racism. And this was a recent, um, I usually have like vocab words and kind of like words that will help you to be able to discuss these topics and engage in these topics because language is so important when we talk about race. I mean, I think language is so important when we talk about anything. And I think you'd agree. I know you were like a teacher and love all that. Mm -hmm. So I feel like language is so important. And I think, um, so when we talk about emotional labor, like this term was originally coined to speak about women in the workplace, but has been applied to like tons and tons of different, um, application. So when we talk about emotional labor in this moment, it's not necessarily that it's like exhausting in and of itself to talk about your experience. Like if black people are speaking to other black people, or if I'm speaking to like my partner, or if I'm speaking to my mom, it's not emotional labor. But if I am um, describing or expressing my situation or a facet of my experience to someone and I need to alter the way in which I communicate that experience in order to manage the other person's expectations and the other person's mood that is emotional labor because I can't just freely express my experience or my real lived truth I have to be constantly checking and double checking internally to make sure that that person feels comfortable and kind of testing the temperature of the room to make sure that like I still have them and that I'm not upsetting them. So I think it is a really delicate situation. And like there's many times that I am burnt out from either um, not care, not doing enough self-care with myself, not giving myself a break um, or just tons of other reasons. And I don't have the ability to have those conversations, but I understand why. And so I think the overall topic is mental health and having the resources to be able to have these conversations in a way that's healthy for you. Like something that I told, um, actually my mom was talking about a conversation she had with one of her coworkers about this that was super upsetting for her. And I was saying for me, my rule of thumb when I engage in a conversation, whether it be like on a platform to like a massive amount of people or in my newsletter or a one-on-one conversation is how does this ultimately benefit my, um, what I'm fighting for? So if I'm having a conversation with someone and it doesn't really seem, it seems like I'm more like defending my life or my humanity, that's not going to benefit any of my goals or enrich me as a person or help me to like build a bridge or form a connection or get a different perspective. It's just going to be upsetting and exhausting. So I feel that 
because I have resources, mental health resources, I've been going to therapy for five years and like therapy all day. Therapy is the best. And because I have a community and a network that supports me because I have um, access to education and also am educating myself along with educating those that I talk to and, you know, the people that read my newsletter and that kind of thing. So I feel like I am in a position that because of how I process my trauma and how I am just as a person with my outgoing personality and my, you know, love of writing and all of these things, it makes sense for me to become a resource, um, to educate people, to engage in conversations and to be able to navigate those things. And for me, this has felt like a start of like a lifelong work. So sometimes I don't necessarily know how to have a conversation or maybe want to, but Mm -hmm. I think about, okay, how can I engage in this conversation to learn something? Because I'm going to have to speak to someone else in the future that might have a similar viewpoint or question. And I'm not, what am I going to do? Run away from this for the rest of my life? Like I would rather know how to engage with it right now. And exactly what you said, like if it's messy or, you know, I've had periods of time where I've been predominantly angry and those conversations have gone one type of way or I'm feeling very sad and vulnerable and those conversations go a different type of way and kind of just like reflecting on what's going on with me, having the expectation of how this conversation might go and having the mental health tools to be able to do that. I think it's really important to have that approach when you're having these conversations because And it's not an excuse by any means, but there are a lot of people who see things in a lot of different lights. And I'm not saying that those lights are correct. And I think that it's the job of people who have different views to educate themselves on becoming anti-racist. But when you're having these conversations, a lot of times as a white person or a black person, and you're talking about racism in general, you're met with skepticism or just negative thoughts about it. And at the same time, when you're having these conversations, the goal of the conversation can't be to solve racism in the conversation. The goal of the conversation is for you to share something that somebody else will learn or to learn something about a person that you didn't know. Yeah, I totally agree. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. It's just, it's tricky because a lot of times, and I think this is not the right thing to do, but people shy away from these confrontational conversations because they don't want to argue or they don't want to sound stupid, right? And so the first step in having any kind of conversation about this is putting those two thoughts to the side because you might have to change somebody's viewpoint and you might also have to stop and step back and say, I didn't understand that about you. I messed up. Yeah, um, and absolutely. those two humps. I feel like when I come to a conversation with someone, I think I absolutely feel significantly more empowered when I educate myself because there's been so many times in my life that I had a particular kind of feeling or experience and I didn't know how to translate that into language and therefore like I felt helpless and that is going to manifest itself in like once I do try to have a conversation with someone, I'm frustrated, I'm angry, I am vulnerable, I am um, not able to put into words like the feelings that I'm having. And I think uh, the more that I do talk about it and the more that I do put words to the feelings and continue to learn more, um, the easier 
it never is easy, but the easier it becomes because there's lots of different things that we have difficult conversations about. And I think before the last like two months, race was not a difficult thing that I was constantly having conversations about, especially with like my friends. Um, and my first conversation that I had at, you know, the start of, of this moment, I was literally shaking because I was so nervous about um, what that other person was feeling and if I was going to eloquently express myself and if they were going to say something offensive and how I was going to deal with that. Right. So, yeah, I think the, for me, the more I talk about it, the more comfortable I feel, but I absolutely do understand and validate a hundred percent the perspective of people, black people that don't want to talk about it, that feel that their trauma, their grief, their, um, whatever they're experiencing from their life is not something that they want to share or that they don't want to engage in these conversations. Like that's a hundred percent real too. It's just not my experience. Yeah. And I want to talk about mental health because I think that it's an overarching concept and really understanding everything that's going on with race in general and having conversations about it. But before I do, I want to talk about tone policing because I know that that's information that you've shared in your newsletter. And she is dancing right now, if you can't see that. (laughs) But I think it's important because if you don't know what tone policing is, it's important to understand it, um, to how it's a big contributor Um, to understanding how to have effective conversations. So I will take a stab at it. You can add on to my definition, but in the way that we discussed it last time, um, tone policing is when, whenever a black person shares their experience with you, basically anything that they say is valid. And so if, oh, as a white person to be tone policing, it would be to take the way that they are saying something, whether it be in coming from underlying anger or emotion or uh, dramatics, like whatever it is that they are sharing, um, you don't view their statement as valid because of the way that they are saying it and not exactly what they are saying. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. I think that was solid. I would add to that. um, I actually had an experience yesterday in between when we filmed the first one and this one (laughs) and that I really wanted to share about um, a company that I worked with and I felt uh, I had done, I had worked with them and and spoken about uh, allyship on their platform and taught a class for them and uh, spent the entire day talking about different facets of racism and Black Lives Matter and all these things on their platform and I felt really good about it. We donated a bunch of money to an organization that's really important to me and overall the collaboration went well. Um, But then kind of the following days, I was seeing content that they were immediately sharing like right next to the picture of my face that made me feel really uncomfortable. And so I reached out to them saying, this makes me feel uncomfortable. They continued to share that same content in their stories and in different posts um, for multiple days after. And I said, I don't feel comfortable with my face being on your platform right next to this post. I'd like to be removed from, from your platform. Ultimately the way that I operate is I'm not going to tell a company how to run their business unless I literally have had CEOs reach out to me and ask to have zoom meetings for me to talk to them if I felt something was uncomfortable. And I appreciate that so much, but if someone doesn't offer that, like, I'm not going to tell them to engage with me in this conversation. Like, 
So basically I was like, I don't feel good about this. I'd like to be removed from this platform and was met. My email was maybe three sentences. Hey, you're continuing to post this content. I feel uncomfortable with it. Please remove me from the platform. And the email I received back was um, that I was lashing out, that I was so aggressive at a brand that was trying their hardest, that I was not being patient and that I was extremely rude. And for me, it was so it was more hurtful, not for myself, because I am super confident at how I express myself. And I think about what I put out there. And I am very clear the moment that I work with anyone that this is where I stand. And this is what I stand for. And that is going to be perpetuated in all of the work that I do. So you need to know this because that's where I'm coming from. So I didn't feel necessarily bad for myself, but I felt like I can't imagine how overwhelming it would feel if I like wasn't a articulate person with so many resources, with all of these tools, with a certain socioeconomic class and status. If I was just someone like expressing my pain to the world and was constantly met with you're rude and you're aggressive and you're lashing out, like I literally have chills right now because I feel that that is like so traumatizing to people and just so deeply painful when someone is grieving, you don't tell them the way in which you want them to grieve. And that is what this is. This is like a mourning. Like for once, when I tell someone that I feel uncomfortable, they believe me for the most part. And that's like massive for me. And that's, you know, that's massive for me. And, and to be put in a position that I know that I'm not believed and not validated for any of my complaints, but instead judged on the way in which it was expressed, which I know was as clear and concise and polite as I could have expressed it. When you talk about race and when someone is offended or hurt or grieving, like no way that they say will be the right way. Like Colin Kaepernick kneeling, that wasn't the right way. People protesting in the street, that wasn't the right way. People boycotting products, that wasn't the right way. Like nothing is going to be comfortable because it's uncomfortable in and of itself. So I think tone policing, it it adds another layer of pain and anger and um, trauma to the entire situation because now not only are you the entire validity of the point you were saying is being ignored but the way in which you said it is now being criticized so yeah i think tone policing is just like so toxic and something that we really need to when someone tells you something even if it is in a way that makes you feel so uncomfortable maybe it is in a way that is like the the less than ideal way to receive a message i think it's super important and yes absolutely we're speaking it in terms of like black people expressing these feelings but like it goes for like any marginalized group. Like if an LGBTQ person is telling you how they feel, like if you mess up someone's pronouns and they're angry about it, sure, you could say, oh, I didn't know. Like, oh my God, why are you freaking out? But that's their identity. and that's But it's your identity. responsibility to own it when you make somebody else feel uncomfortable and they feel uncomfortable. A hundred percent. Absolutely. What I was thinking while you were explaining this story is that not only is it harmful 
to your mental health by trying to reach out and express that you're uncomfortable and receiving that response back as though you did something wrong when you were just trying to vocalize to somebody. But at the same time, like you were saying to somebody that doesn't have the education or the mental health um, ability or the knowledge to express themselves eloquently, not only were you just shut down, but then it makes having a conversation 80 times harder because technically what you were doing was not trying to have a conversation with them about race. You were trying to understand what they were doing with their business platform and expressing that you felt uncomfortable and you wanted to be taken down, right? You weren't asking them about what their policies were. You weren't, which you could in another setting, but you weren't in that time. So imagine if you wanted to reach out and actually have a conversation with them or with people who support their business about race and things that are just going on in general, it becomes that much harder because anytime you bring up even the slightest thing, a three sentence email, you get shut down because of the way that you're saying it. Yeah. And, and again, I feel like I do not believe that there is any way that I could have said what I said and not have been met with that response Mm -hmm. because ultimately what I'm asking is to not be associated and not have my face immediately next to a post that that I don't feel aligns with my my beliefs and and who I am um so yeah I feel like no matter what I said it wasn't going to go over smoothly because of how this person felt and I think no matter how I verbalized it it would have been perceived in a negative way because ultimately I'm not saying that's something that they want to hear Like if, you know, when we talk about racism, I'm not, I'm not going to say something that you want to hear. If you're asking me the way in which I feel oppressed, it's not going to be something that makes you feel super comfortable, especially the first, second, third time that you're talking about it. So I don't think there would have been any way to say it better. Um, I just think it, it's, it was difficult no matter what. And I also want to talk quickly about white fragility because I think it also, I don't know that the owner of the business that you reached out to was white, but I think that in general it contributes to misunderstanding when when you have these conversations because white fragility from what, again, what I understand it to be is that when we speak about racism, taking it as an individualized personal attack on something that the white person did wrong rather than talking about racism as a system and that white person owning up to not necessarily that they have been racist or they might have without realizing it, but being part of a system in which there other people are oppressed and they're going about their day and not doing anything about it. Yeah. I, um, my fave definition of white fragility that I shared last time that I'm going to share again (laughs) is discomfort and defensiveness on the part of the white person when confronted by information about racial inequality and injustice. And I think exactly what you said, combined with what I said, I think it overall is just kind of going back to my earlier point that like these conversations are going to be difficult. And so I think the best thing you could do is like be prepared to be uncomfortable so that when it arises, you don't automatically like want to get rid of that feeling because I think your instinct is to kind of like push it away with defensiveness um, that as if you need to protect yourself. And I think 
we really need to remember that like these are conversations and a lot of times they're about like way larger topics and on a way larger scale but I think even for those ones that are like very personal like I've spoken about before like I've had so many people uh, ask if they can like wear my extensions and I've had people like literally take them off of my hair and like put them on and be like oh my god this is so funny and like make an Instagram story like look I'm wearing Taylor's hair like that's happened to me within the last year of my life like as an adult as an adult person and in those moments often I've defaulted to laughter because I'm nervous and I'm in a space that I don't feel safe to express like how I am genuinely feeling but that's not going to happen now and so if I tell someone hey what you just did that's a microaggression. And in fact, it's actually a little bit more than that. That's racist. And that makes me super uncomfortable. I think especially when we use the term racist, people like their brains explode and they're like, yeah, they're like, I'm not a racist. And I think it's super important, again, language to actually learn what something means. Because I think that um, when you hear a word that's like triggering, you just think racist slave owners. That's not me. I'm not someone that would like participate in these behaviors. I'm not racist, but I think racism is intertwined into so many things in our everyday life. Even like I've been learning about implicit bias and it like makes my brain explode that half the time, like the decisions and choices that we make, they're not even with our conscious bias, right? They're just implicit. You see someone or you see something and your brain has made these categories for you to function through life. And so I was reading about this black author that when she went to a a school that was predominantly white as a kid, she said she couldn't really distinguish all the kids' faces in her class because she'd never been around that many white people. And she was like, they all look this, she was like, they literally all look the same to me. And that is an implicit bias, right? I've heard people tons of times say, oh, all black people look alike, all Asian people look alike, because it might be a group that they don't have a lot of actual interaction with. They see them in movies or on TV or from afar, but if you name their 10 best friends, none of them are that race. Mm -hmm. And so implicit bias is not necessarily something that we choose. It's just not. It's something that is put upon us by the situation that we live in and the communities we live in. So it's our job to like go out and like interact with people of different races, like learn things about different people and put yourself in those uncomfortable settings so that when someone does say, hey, that was a microaggression or that was racist, that you can understand, okay, I have these implicit biases. I live in a white supremacist society that is founded on systemic racism. Some of these behaviors I often say are by well-meaning people. Most of the time in my definition, I start them with well-meaning people who X, Y, and Z. And tons of other, uh, tons of people do. Like I started doing that because I was seeing it over and over. Because I think what we need to realize is that I'm not saying you're a terrible person. I'm saying that behavior was racist. So you need to focus on that behavior and that facet instead of me thinking I'm attacking your entire character and your family and your life and everything about you. But if you do something that's racist, that thing that you did is like what we need to focus on. And I think white fragility doesn't allow you to because you take it so personal and you think I'm saying like you as a human being. Right. And it's also, I think, how we play the long game because 
by focusing on something, if I do something that you feel is racist and you have a discussion with me about it and I focus on that thing and I further educate myself on why I maybe acted in the way that I did looking into the system and how I can change going forward, like that's a win. And then we just have to continue to do that over and over and over again. And I mentioned the last time we spoke, it's like really doing an exorbitant amount of work for us, for white people in this generation, and then in turn, like fixing it for the next generation. And I think that implicit bias is so real. Um, have you ever heard of the, like the Harvard little tests? Do you know what I'm talking mm-hmm. about? There's, um, I can't remember the exact name. I'll send it to you after this. You'd find it very interesting. But I first learned about um, white supremacy when I was in college, which I, why did it take me until I was 22 to learn about this? But I did. So at the time, a professor shared with me, there's this site that like Harvard produces where you can basically you get two images on a screen, a white person and a black person. And before you start all of that, you say like, this is the, your left hand is good. Your right hand is evil. And then it'll be like sickness and you press evil and it'll be like sunshine and you press good and blah, 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 blah. And you get used to the good and evil. And then all of a sudden faces show up. And as quickly as you can, without thinking, you press the good or the evil button. Um, and then it shows like, do you have like a massive bias against black people, against white people, moderate or none at all. Um, and I took it in college and I took it again when this all came about a couple months ago. And both times I had a moderate, um, bias against the black people like it's just ingrained in your brain which is very scary to think about and so then it's thinking about well like how do I change my everyday experiences how do I rewire my thought process when I'm thinking about people that I know in terms of changing that because the only way that you can change an implicit bias and like correct me if I'm wrong is by like cognitively being aware of it in your day-to-day yeah I mean I, like I was saying, I like, I always knew what implicit bias was like as a term, but hadn't really looked deeper into it until recently. And I think absolutely, I'm sure like making that cognitive and um, uh, what's it called? Like a, like a conscious, yeah, a conscious decision, I'm sure. But there's definitely so many more people that know way more about this that would be able to shed light on better ways to tackle implicit bias because again it's like insane that it's not necessarily something that we're conscious of and not something that we've created within ourselves. it's something based on the society that we've been around i mean especially growing up like i grew grew up in a predominantly white community and you don't have a choice about that. What like when you're a child, you're just put right. into these spaces. And so that was my experience. But there's, you know, if you imagine how many different experiences people have from the time that they're a kid until they could finally make their like real decision of where they want to live and what friends they want to have that aren't just the people that live on their street. Those are the moments that it, like you really have to make a conscious decision. I've even thought about it in terms of like, the things that I use and like I never had black dolls as a child I've always had dolls that look like me and I never thought I mean I don't really think about my kids toys in general in the future but I've never it's never crossed my mind to do that but I've thought about it in the past few months like I I would 100% want my kids to play with dolls that look in different ways because 
if you're surrounded from the second that you're born, because a lot of kids don't even go to school until they're five, right? They go to school. Yeah. In kindergarten. If you're surrounded only by people who look like you, then the second you see somebody who doesn't, that person is an outsider. Yeah. I mean, I remember my first experience, like understanding that I was like othered in my community was in kindergarten, a boy in my class told me that everyone in my class looked like white bread and that I looked burnt. And I, I imagine that he must have either heard that from someone or seen that somewhere because like we were so young and I just always felt that from that moment of just like being othered from like the people that around me that obviously that definitely shaped my identity. And like pretty much the first thing that I say when someone asks me about growing up is that I grew up in a predominantly white community because that has shaped my identity so much. Absolutely. I, it's hard. And when you're a kid and you're growing up, so many, so much of your brain is developing and you're not really understanding a lot of the world around you in general. And so you didn't have all of this knowledge about the system and about what it's like to be Black in America in general as you're growing up. Like you have what your parents tell you. And it sounds like from what you knew about Christopher Columbus, you had a good understanding and a really supportive <laughs> family who educated you. But if you don't have that, then you don't know. And then it's even more exploration as you get older. And then it's even more frustration. And then it's even more emotional when you're trying to have these conversations with people who aren't paying attention to you or listening. For sure. Yeah. Um, I just lost my train of thought for five seconds, but I wanted to talk about, oh, so I wanted to talk about mental health in general, because like we said, you have um, experience with therapy, which we both have and both think that it's absolutely fantastic, but it's because you have this experience and you're able to articulate yourself that you're able to share information. And it's also, um, I think it greatly helps me as a white person to have these conversations and know that I can admit when I'm wrong and I can admit that I'm not perfect because I've had conversations in therapy around my perfectionism. And so a lot of the black community does not have access to therapy. Some of the white community doesn't have access either. And so when you take into consideration mental health, how do you think it plays a role in having these conversations and making those conversations constructive? Yeah, I mean, I think not only the access to mental health resources, but also the stigma around mental health resources um, in the Black community uh, is definitely there. And I feel like, I mean, don't get me wrong, I think there are absolutely people out there that like have never been exposed to these mental health resources and are still massively able to educate and speak on these topics and be community organizers and all of those things. For me, it's very important because I internalized a lot of this racism when I was younger. And so I don't think I would have felt, um, like I literally was saying yesterday, I feel like my entire life is me trying to get back to like who I was in first grade. Because in first grade, I was like awesome. And I was like literally putting up with like no one's garbage. And I was like yelling at my teacher about Christopher Columbus. And I was like, amazing. Everything. Yeah, I was like everything I honestly want to be now. But I think that like therapy has helped me process all of the things in between first grade and now that kind of like made me feel a certain way. Um, and things that, you know, traumatized me or caused me pain or whatever it might be. Um, I think that overall, I was talking to my therapist the other day about my activism and how it's overwhelming uh, at times and just how I was feeling. 
And he was like, honestly, just you going to therapy is a massive step because you're making the world a better place just by going to therapy. Even if you did nothing else, you would be doing a lot for the world. And I think that that was kind of an awesome way to put it because I mean, mental health affects every aspect of our life. It definitely does for me. It it affects my relationship with my partner. It it affects my relationship with myself more than anything, um, with my family, with my job. And so, I mean, I think that I honestly don't even remember what your question was. I'm not going to lie. Okay. My question was basically what role do you think mental health plays in having these conversations? Great. So yeah, I mean, mental health, I think plays a role in everything and how you express yourself to other people and how you see yourself. Because if I have a conversation with someone and it doesn't necessarily go the way that I want, it's not going to make me think now, well, maybe they're right maybe I'm wrong in what I believe. Now I have the tools to be able to stick to what I believe in. And I also have the tools to apologize or change my mind. And I think like normalizing the idea of changing your mind when you get new information is like such a big, big thing. And also normalizing the idea that something can be many things at once. Like, someone or a business or a movie or a song or a community, they, we don't have to say this is good. This is not racist. This is bad. This is racist. Absolutely. There are things that are just a hundred percent racist, right? That there's like no gray areas. That's a hundred percent true. And there are things that are just a hundred percent wholesome and like amazing. And like, that's true. But I think a lot of things exist in this space where like, Ooh, this is kind of problematic, but like, this is kind of awesome about it. So like both of those things are kind of functioning at once. And that's why it's like really important to actually engage with things around you and see like different perspectives. Like when Hamilton came out on Disney plus, I was like more hype than anything in the universe. And then I started feeling super problematic when I was like, like literally so hyped for Thomas Jefferson and Thomas Jefferson, like started raping his slave when she was 14 and she had six of his children and like that's wild to me so like this is very problematic how am i going to wrap my head around loving hamilton and knowing that a lot of these figures are like slave owners and racist and i think that like these are the moments that we have to realize that okay things can be a lot of different things and i think mental health absolutely plays into it and being able to have those conversations even with yourself to kind of normalize that idea that you can you can explore the ways in which things are have many different complex facets and i think correct me if i'm wrong but it also plays a role in understanding the way that your voice and your actions fit into the world as a whole because i think it was beautiful how much was shared on social media for a span of two to three months Um, but the fear is that all of a sudden that just stops, um, and the heavy, heavy activism leads to burnout and while racism is still here, I tried and I failed. So I'm just going to go back to the way it was before, you know, because it's exhausting, right? Like it's exhausting to experience racism as a black person. Um, it takes a lot to drop everything that you're doing and share all of these resources and sign petitions. And so I think instead of looking at, I mean, this is the whole theme of the podcast, but instead of looking at it as an all or nothing, it's like, 
what is one thing that I can do every day to fight systemic racism? And whether that's sign a petition or whether it's share something on social media, like, yes, you'll probably still eat your stupid avocado toast for breakfast and you'll probably still get a workout in um, and you'll still take care of your kids and you'll still like do things with friends. Um, but how can you incorporate these conversations in your day to day? How can you support black businesses and how can you um, really fight to reverse everything that has gotten us up to this point? Yeah, I mean, I think ultimately integrating blackness into your life is the answer because then the place that you go out to eat that you want to take that selfie, that's a black owned restaurant. And so when you tag them and you talk about whatever your night was, then you are sharing something that helps to elevate black people and amplify their voices and support their businesses. If you're buying from black owned businesses, same thing. If you like literally just take your selfie that you were always going to take anyway, but you are wearing clothes that were bought from a black business, black owned business, then right there you have that element of the conversation. Um, same thing with like just your clothes in general. Oh, uh, I want to talk about the hoop earrings I'm wearing or the sneakers I'm wearing or the hoodie I'm wearing because this is actually really influenced by black culture in these ways. And like understanding that um, black culture is like so ingrained in our society, like so many lit things come from black culture, like the music that you listen to and the clothes that you wear and the sneakers that you love and like the hoops that you love and like the food that you eat. And it's really just like paying attention to that and noticing that. And I don't think every single moment of your life can be a moment of education. Like it is exhausting and it's not realistic. I think that like subscribing to newsletters that you get every single week that are like a spark to a conversation that you're going to have in your home or research that you're going to delve deeper into. Um, I think choosing a couple books and then like setting a schedule for like when you want to read them or documentaries and like every Monday night, I'm going to sit down with my family and watch a documentary that discusses something about racism or the black community, or maybe it's just a movie that like elevates the black community or talks about an element of black culture. And like, I think it's like long-term things that are ingrained into our everyday life. And I am, I've been super vocal about my social media feed going back to normal and how uncomfortable that is for me. And I think that my, if I could put into one sentence is like, especially like my partner, he barely uses Instagram, but if he posts a picture of his car, he posts a resource specific usually to like him being Asian and like how Asian people can be proactive in this movement, but he'll post a resource for everything he posts because that's how he feels best, you know, to incorporate that in. But I think especially people that are extremely public on social media, extremely open with their day-to-day life to then say, I've had so many conversations that people then say, oh, I'm being private with my learning. And that just doesn't rub me the right way or feel genuine to me. Because if you're public with everything else, but you are private with this thing, that seems like the thing that you it's, want It to seems hide. like it sends, the, yeah, it sends the message that you're not necessarily private with your learning. You just don't feel like sharing it. Right. And that makes me super uncomfortable. And I'm sure there are black people that feel all different kinds of ways. We're not a monolith. I don't speak for every black person, but it makes me feel super uncomfortable when someone posts from their like 8am latte until they post the moon at 
10 o'clock at night, but in no time did they post anything about black people. <laughs> Yet they have a black square on their feed and they're wearing hoop earrings and they're listening to rap music all day in their right. posts. This makes me uncomfortable. This is like not something that makes me feel that you genuinely care about my day-to-day -day life and safety and relevance and dreams. And that makes me feel bad. Right. And so I think it's super important to take the two seconds more to try and integrate something about blackness because I would bet that it's there even if you wanted to or not I bet that it's somewhere in your life yeah I was going to it. say it, especially when it's not like you don't touch black culture in general like for me this is like it's insane how much I live off of black culture from the music that I listened to in high school. I know every single word to how many hip hop songs. I grew up a dancer. All of the dances that I did came from black culture. Um, the hoop earrings, the way that I dress, like the celebrities that I love, like it goes on and on and on. But I think recognizing that you can't just love black culture when it's mainstream without understanding where it actually stems from and appreciating that. So you're already interested in the things that you're learning about. You just need to like take the extra step and learn about them. Yeah, and I think of course, like do we need to do more than just talk about like, oh, this is a cool thing I'm doing that involves black culture on social media. Like, of course, I think it's super important that like from now until the rest of my life, I'm gonna be posting petitions with swipe up links because people are more likely to sign it if they just have to swipe up because we're all lazy. And I feel that because if I have the link right in front of me, I'm more likely to do Yeah, it's in front it. of their face. Yeah. So like, I'm going to be doing that for the rest of my life. Can I say that like, I'm probably, I'm going to be doing this newsletter or some iteration of it for the rest of my life. Like I want this to be a work that I do forever, but I think that it's not about posting and reposting 50 graphics that talk about racism onto your feet every day. But I do think that like when you see one that genuinely interests you or that you feel your community of followers would benefit from seeing, it is about sharing that too. I don't think that there can be any shame or discomfort around sharing things related to this because if there is, I think you really need to dig deep and figure out what that's about because if you feel ashamed or uncomfortable to post about Black Lives Matter on your feed and you want to do it in private because you don't think the people that follow you would feel comfortable, then I think you really need to evaluate that because that should make you uncomfortable. Yeah. And it's also not about the amount of likes and comments you get, because if you think that posting something like that is going to screw up your engagement, um, just like wake up because nobody is living their best life right now. How many people are sick and dying? How many people are being killed? And there's so much more to the number of likes that you get on a photo. Don't be embarrassed if it's less than normal. Chances are somebody read that and shared it and learned from it. So you're doing more good by sharing that than by posting another selfie of yourself that gets over a thousand likes and does nothing for anybody. Absolutely, girl. Yes. Is there anything else that you want to close out on um, before we wrap up? Yes. So for me, I think something super important to always mention I mean, I think especially because I am a cisgender female, I'm light skinned, which definitely has its different advantages and all like in a gross way. Um, and I am mixed race. And I feel that the same way 
that black people are looking to white people as allies um, and to speak up for them. And because they have more power and they have more attention on them, I think it's the same way that I definitely feel called to a responsibility to always speak for my black and brown siblings, whether that be members of the LGBTQ com community. I did a newsletter a couple weeks ago that talked about only 18% of Americans say that they've ever engaged with a transgender person in their life. And um, there's a new Netflix documentary, Disclosure, that just like beautifully expresses how trans people are portrayed in the media. And therefore, if 80% of people don't know a trans person, that means 80% of people are only getting this information from the media. And it's super important to elevate black trans lives. And I think it's awesome that we are seeing that intersectionality in the movement. Um, I think we just really always need to focus that being as inclusive and um, you know, understanding the complexities of a black identity, whether it be someone like me that my parents, my mom's Puerto Rican, my dad's Dominican, and I grew up with that Hispanic um, culture, speaking Spanish, that food, that music, and I'm still black. Um, whether it's people that are different ethnicities or have different, you know, if they're just have someone with disabilities, if they have various different identities, different socioeconomic statuses, different appearances, all those things are super important. Um, so when we say Black Lives Matter, we know that all Black Lives Matter, no matter what they look like or who they are, who they have access to, or what their identity is. And yeah, I think just stressing the intersectionality of this movement is always really important to me. If you're listening to this and you feel like you do enough or for whatever reason, I can't imagine why you would feel this way, but you feel as though you don't have anything left to give towards this movement, I think about it like you get one life on this earth, right? And so you have the opportunity to segregate yourself with other people who look like you and live in your limited belief system where you don't have a lot of knowledge and education about other people's experiences, or you can meet and talk to as many people as possible and really under try to understand their POV, which is probably very, very different than yours. And why wouldn't you do that? Why, why wouldn't you do that? And I think that's where it starts and having these conversations. And that's why I'm so grateful that you came on the podcast today because without conversations like this and hopefully people hear this and it inspires them to have conversations of their own, um, that's the only way that progress is made. For sure. Yes, girl. Agree. So before I let you sign off, I just want to talk about your newsletter because it is fantastic. It's not something that you're going to spend 80 hours reading. It is concise and there is a ton of information in a very, um, very clear way. So if you are not already subscribed to her newsletters and you go to the link in her bio, she has the past ones. So you can just click it right on your phone. It's super convenient. And then do you send them out weekly? Yeah. So I send them out every Monday night. Um, and they have whatever topic. And I also do like polls on my social media for whatever different topics we want to talk about. Um, and I have a bunch, I mean, like I said, I'm going to do this forever for the rest of my life, as far as I know right now, because um, there's so much to talk about, but I try to keep it really specific every week, send them out every Monday. We'll always have like reminders for people to sign up and stuff on Instagram. And then, like you said, I keep them all in my Instagram bio so people can read them, you know, whenever, if they're new, if they're new share, to the page. Share your Insta so people know where to find you. My Instagram is Taylor Ray Almonte, and 
that's where I am everywhere. So my website, I literally have no other fun social media platforms. So that's all I got. I tried to get like <laughs> Twitter and the whole, I try to TikTok. Like I just, I'm not a robot. I don't have time to like update 75 different platforms a day. Me either. So. I feel you. So again, thank you so much for coming. Um, please check her out. Please converse with her as well. If you have any questions about this episode, you can find the podcast at Not My Best Podcast, and you can find me on Instagram at Julia L. Stern. And per usual, stop trying to live your best life and start living a better one.